Welcome to Vital Stories, the official podcast of the Green Spa Network, where we will hear ideas and stories from environmental leaders and industry experts whose insights can help inspire us to take steps in our lives and businesses in support of vital people and vital planet. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, share, and review. And don't forget to visit us at greenspanetwork.org to join a spa and wellness community that cares. I'm Joanna Roach, the Executive Director of the Green Spa Network. Thank you for tuning in to Vital Stories, which is brought to you in part by Nantucket's NPR station, WNCK 89.5, home of our sister show, Balancing Act. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Bill Reed of the Regenesis Group in Boston. So welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Joanna. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you a little bit about your work because I think I had mentioned to you then that, you know, obviously I live on Nantucket, which is this tiny island 30 miles out to sea. And a lot of what we talk about are issues that relate to environmental preservation or sustainability or how to make all of our systems work well together. And lo and behold, this is the work that you do. It is. So tell us a little bit about your practice. Sure. And I want to make a distinction uh, between sustainability and regeneration. Um, I've been in the sustainability. Some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the LEED Green Building Rating System. I'm one of the founders of that. And that's an important beginning to, as, uh, to, on the path towards sustainability but it's still something that we call limiting the damage, or as some wag said, it's a slower way to die. That sustainability, as we're practicing it these days, is an exercise in efficiency. And efficiency means we're reducing the damage, but we're not stopping the damage. We're not returning or restoring the damage. So most of the practices of sustainability are inadequate. And they're necessary, but insufficient. So our practice kind of woke up to that about 25 years ago and said, we got to do, be doing something else. So how do we actually work with the principles of life and regenerate life? Because life continually goes through birth, life, death, rebirth, rebirth. How do we actually regenerate our relationship with evolutionary processes? I'll stop there because it can get a little geeky. <laughs> um, I think that this was one of the things I learned from the conference was the difference between sustainability and regenesis. And I think it's an important point and something that is not – um, given enough exposure in our society and in our economy. Yep, yep. It's, it's beginning to, people are beginning to wake up to the idea that we actually need to be doing both. The question is, how do we do it and what's the benefit of doing it? <clears throat> so I can, I can keep on rambling, but if you have some specific <laughs> questions, uh, let's take it from you. I, I do. Uh, y- you know, I looked at your website and there's a lot of really interesting things on there. And one of the things that it said on there was changing the way humans inhabit the earth. What do you mean by that? Well, we used to. The, actually, the healthiest places on the planet, I can, you got to give me the hook on this one, Joanna, but I'll <laughs> talk for a little bit. The healthiest places on the planet throughout history have been when humans are engaged in an ecosystem, not when we remove ourselves from the system. Humans have a role to play. And just like when we snip a, uh, we prune an apple tree or nip a basil plant, what we're doing is we're giving energy to the plant to actually thrive and actually provide more food for other species. Humans have had that role with fire regimens and that kind of thing, whether it's in Australia or the northeast 
I can tell you about the Northeast forest. Um, we, uh, when before native, before Europeans got here, we had many more species, an average of seven trees per acre, not the big deep forests that we have now, and it was a more diverse and resilient ecosystem. So by humans re-inhabiting the earth in a new way, or in an old way, is basically how do we become indigenous again in spirit and in practice? How do we actually, instead of occupying the land, how do we inhabit it again? Mm-hmm. And also, how do we push forth that concept and get it, the attention that it needs? Yeah, that's the big question, and that's been our mission for, like I said, 25 years. And it's, it's people are beginning to wake up and realizing that a mechanical approach, just reducing reducing the damage, is is not the full story. And what's really cool about this work is what, when people understand the way life wants to work, in the, each place, because each place is different, in their home place, like take Nantucket, for, for instance, people actually re-engage. They actually, we say they fall in love with life again, and that's a heck of a lot better motivator than guilt or fear. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that that's what you consider to be a whole living ecosystem, is when all those things are working in harmony. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So, you know, one of the things I've heard you talk about also is the this concept of either or thinking right tell us about that okay well so it's it's actually my my most uh i consider it the most important point i have to make today and perhaps anywhere is that we we live in a society that's dualistic or binary in nature it's either or logic i mean look at our politics look at the way we make decisions from Aristotelian times when neoplatonic thinking is either or logic well how do we do both and thinking we hear that tossed around a lot well, the ancients had a framework that they called the law of three, that if when you have, have confronting, all life can be seen as an activating force or a receive, and a receiving or a restraining force. So we want to build a building, nature gets in the way, nimbyism gets in the way, um, other infrastructure issues get in the way, budget gets in the way. How do we... How do we, we typically try to try to compromise around that. Somebody gives up a little here, somebody gives up a little bit there. When we compromise, we are actually slowly destroying the earth. We compromise again, we compromise again, and we think that's the height of political sophistication. It's actually a word we, I believe we need to excise out of our language. What nature does, it harmonizes. The willow tree is not debating with the oak tree about nutrient exchange. They live in a dance, a continual dance of mutual benefit. We need to learn to rethink and become, if you will, in better relationship with each other. When we do that, and we see this happening in major cities and in even countries around the world, when people begin to think about what the potential is for a system to be healthy, rather than trying to solve individual problems and debating about it, we find that people actually move forward in a common direction. And it is miraculous what happens in a very short period of time. That was maybe a little too fast an explanation, but I hope that was coherent. No, I think it's very interesting because I think also what you're talking about, this either-or concept, it dumbs things down. Right. I mean, look at what we do with the democracy and our, our voting. We make things incredibly simple, overly simplistic, and then we ask people to make a choice between two overly simplistic concepts. Neither of which really address the problem. Right. So what, where do we end up? Right where we are right now <clears throat> in our current political era, mm-hmm. around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of your projects. Sure, because I think it actually helps illustrate this. Yeah. Um, a project we completed about four years ago was a close to a billion-dollar wastewater treatment plant. We get hired to, to integrate complex 
integrate complexity and contradiction. So 50-person design team, 50-person client team, 24 communities make up Vancouver, all of them disagreeing on what to do with this wastewater treatment plant and all the rate increases that were going to be coming up, and everybody was against that. Within six months, after working with what people really believe at their core, we instead of starting with strategies or design, we start with belief and philosophy and principles, and we spend months working on belief and philosophy and principles. And we did that with the communities. We did that with Metro Vancouver, the design team. And within six months, all everybody was totally aligned around the process. It was the first or one of the first unanimous approval votes in British Columbia history. It came in 18 months faster than uh, planned. Uh, it took 25, it reduced the design time by 25%. We only spent 2% of the expected change orders, which basically paid for the design fee. And every participant said it was the greatest project they'd ever participated in, not because the project was so great, but because people were in relationship. And that's really what happens. When we can get aligned around common purpose or potential, not just problem solving around potential, the problems actually dissolve. And by the way, nobody was even talking about rate increases after that because the bigger purpose of the healthy ecosystem and healthy social system was paramount in their minds. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and by the way, we were just hired for the new one um, that just is going to be starting in a month. So this technique and tech, mental technology, if you will, is powerful. Mm -hmm. And I know that you also work globally and have re-engineered some other sort of really interesting countries, cities. Yeah, we're working in Auckland, New Zealand right now, and the uh, city has hired us to work on the area of South Auckland, which is a divisive area, the largest Polynesian island nation uh, population in the world. And we're working in uh, Vina del Mar, Chile right now, on a, we're a, in a city that's basically dying. And instead of people complaining about the developer and the development, which they have every right to do, we actually made everybody a stakeholder in the health of the larger city. And people said, well, how are we going to work on that? And all we really are doing is helping people see that we can recover the potential of the city and then having them gather together in an integrated group so that people who are interested in education or gender equity or social equity or climate change or habitat connectivity or the health of the estuary, they're all coming there with their particular interest areas. But what we're doing is we are all acting in the service of the larger potential living system health of that place. And people are excited, and it begins to draw people out of the woodwork who are not interested at all anymore because they actually, it's like coming to a party. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, an, it's a field invitation. It's, it's an energy field that's being created that's an attractor. So do you start with the individual, or do you start with, like, where do you start? We start by, by looking at the eco, social and ecological <clears throat> system, and we actually interview people. We don't ask people what they want. We ask people how they live. That is a, that's a real trick question for people because we don't really think about the patterns of our lives. But once people start getting into it, what's really important to them, not what they heard in the paper or what Oprah talked about or what their mother said, but what they're, the patterns of life that are meaningful to them, it's revelatory. And then we share with them our learnings about the ecosystem and the economic system and the social system, what's going on. And those patterns are actually very similar when you start getting down to the core. Mm -hmm. So we're basically collaboratively learning with 15 to 20, maybe 30 interested 
groups, small kitchen table conversations. We don't have massive meetings. It's almost like community organizing. But we go through that loop a couple, three times of helping people gradually see and unfold what the potential is, what the opportunities are, what the possibilities are in this place. And they get excited because for the first time, they're not being shown a plan and saying, here, isn't this the greatest plan you've ever seen? I did it, after all. It must be wonderful. That's really a turnoff to people. What we're helping them to see is how life wants to work, and then the planning takes place after that. I see. And how do you engage the business community? Uh, equally. It's the same way. We were talking to the business. So the chamber, this is a kind of a fun story, the, chamber, the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce down there did not want to talk to a couple of gringos from the states. He said, you know, we know how it works. Take, <laughs> take a hike. So... Ten months later, he calls our client and he says, Ricardo, I don't know what you guys are doing, but count us in. This is the first time the city's been able to dream in 30 years. And that happened because there was a buzz going on. Well, that's a powerful testimonial. It is. I, it's one of the, I love that story. That's actually. an incredible quote. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, and our client called us up to share that with us. Yeah. He was so excited. So what project have you done that you feel is either your favorite or has had the most impact? Oh, boy. Well, I have to say that Lionsgate Wastewater Treatment Plant in Vancouver has had the most impact. We've had, we are now in New Zealand and Australia uh, working on, on, well, major projects in New Zealand and some potentially major ones in Australia because of that project. And... Um, because when people could, when people, they heard a big presentation by the architects, the two engineering firms, AECOM, CH2M Hill, Miller Hall Architects, the client, Metro Vancouver, and all of them saying it's the greatest project we've ever worked on, that's significant to people when they hear that. And we were immediately invited to New Zealand to give a series of lectures. And from there, we connected with the Maori people. The Maori people said, wow, you believe what we believe, and New Zealand and the Maori, the European population, the Maori population are, are truly reconciling down there. It's unlike any place on the planet. And so we're now um, engaging in a whole new planning process in, in the entire country of New Zealand. Well, congratulations on that. That's Yeah, we're really excited about that. That's amazing. I think that um, something that's on everyone's mind these days, because there's been a ton of media attention to it, are single-use plastics. Ah, Oh, yeah. Well, right. I, so wonderful that people are becoming conscious of that. It's so wonderful. I, I mean, I, I think I've never seen this sort of connection to one thing that people think they can change. Yeah. Well, that's, oh, that's really a good comment. People do. They can, it's immediately accessible, right? Right. And, and they can see the immediate damage. Yep, I can stop using them. I have friends in Australia who, are, who have been doing diving all around the ocean, just picking up plastic, harvesting plastic from the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in context with what we were just talking about, I would say that is a great entry point where people are energized, right? Right. The question is, can you link that work with all the other work it's connected to? Our attitude towards soil, our attitude towards food, our attitude towards transportation and mobility, because all of them are having impacts together in aggregate, right? So if you can get people to, to serve, to actually get together as a whole and then on Nantucket, let's say, and begin to see how all these things are integrated instead of just single source problems, then we can address the potential for health on the island.
and the marine ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's one spoke of the wheel, so to speak. Yeah, it's, it's one of many, right? Right. And so how do we actually use that energy? Because everybody's energized around something. And you know what we've found is that people want to be in relationship. They want to be in, re- but more importantly, they want to be in relationship around meaningful purpose. If you can show people that what they're interested in has, serves a role and can be integrated to work towards a whole system of solutions, that's even more powerful. Mm, I agree. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about you. So where in the world are you living? (laughs) I'm in Boston, actually Arlington, Mass. Just over the pond. Yeah, I sailed in Nantucket (laughs) now and then. Okay. Nice place to visit. That's Nice place to be, actually. (laughs) Very nice place to be. I think everyone will agree with you. Um, How did you become engaged in this work? Uh, So... Basically, I had a, almost a religious experience seeing a passive solar greenhouse in Vermont in the mid-1970s. I was skiing and working up there. And uh, I realized that there's so much more that we can do with our building stock. As an archi- I'm an architect and planner. And uh, that put me on a journey of saying, well, what else can we integrate? What else can we engage? And we wrote a book on integrative systems thinking, and then which led to the regenerative systems thinking. Um, so... One of the early members and founding board members of the U.S. Green Building Council, we, we developed the LEED program, which actually integrates more than just energy concerns. And then we said, asked ourselves, where do we stop integrating? Well, the site, the landscape, the soil, the food system. And we realized there's this metaphysics, spirituality. Where do we stop in embracing all the aspects of life in uh, the practice that we do? And so as a result, we ended up here at um, how do we regenerate all those new relationships and the potential to deal with living life as a whole? That's a, that's a short, that's a summary. Yeah, because it reminds me, you also spoke about that really amazing project you did in Brattleboro. Oh, that's a good example. I loved that example. You want me to share that? Yes, quickly? please. So, you know, how does, a, and the question this answers is how does a building become an acupuncture point for healing an ecosystem. And so we were called up to do a lead gold building, which is a green energy efficiency, low toxicity materials, that kind of thing. And so we asked them, do you want a lead certificate or do you want sustainability? And they said, we want both, which I thought was a great answer. And so because it was a grocery store, we looked at a little bit of research on food. And what we found out is the average bite of food in the United States travels 3,600 miles. And our first meeting with the executive committee, we said, before we start the meeting, let's go tour the grocery store and find out where foods come from. And we, the, first, the first stop was the apple bin, and guess where they came from? New Zealand. So you can see where we get the 3,600 miles. There were strawberries from California, blueberries from Chile. So this gro- they, And we said, we asked them the question, what happens if there's a trucker's strike? Well, we're out of business in three days. Or what happens if Whole Foods moves into town? out of business pretty quickly. And what's the one thing that Whole Foods or a trucker's strike can't compete with? And that's local food. So this grocery store became an opportunity to reinvigorate and initialize farms again in the area because there were only two farms out of a former 50 or so that surrounded the area 40 years ago. So this grocery store was programmed to become, and, and, and basically the best soil remaining in Brattleboro was in downtown Brattleboro. And we fed, we, we fed the, our country in backyard gardens 
So this grocery store was programmed to become an agricultural and soil extension service to teach people how to grow their own food again, and a cannery, and a daycare center, and a forest extension service to start working with the health of the watershed and the land that had been so devalued and degraded by bad farming practices and lumbering practices years ago, grazing practices, and an abattoir for hunters to dress their meat. What else? Oh, a credit union to loan money to to potential young farmers to reestablish the farms, and by the way, a grocery store. So you can see how any project has an opportunity, if we expand the system, um, we can actually do so much more. Dwight Eisenhower had a great quote. When you, if you're having trouble solving a problem, enlarge it. Don't reduce it. Enlarge it. And that gives us so, much more vari- so many more variables, so much more potential to deal with. Right. I love that example. That's very exciting. So right. where do you find inspiration for your work and balance in your life? Uh, well, balance is one thing. I'll tell you, the inspiration is... Certainly, it comes from nature, seeing how nature collaborates. It isn't, it isn't a, just a dog-eat-dog world out there. There's a dance, dance of reciprocity. We have a lot to learn from nature. And so that's one of the great lessons that we bring to communities is how this dance works and how they can participate in this dance. And then certainly the inspiration comes from the permaculture movement, Bill Mollison, David Holmgren, uh, and then the organizational uh, dynamics world, talking about our mutual friend Tom. It's kind of what he does. What we did is we married organizational dynamics and permaculture to look at how people and living systems can be whole. Um, so that's the shorthand version. <laughs> um, I like it. I like it. Those okay. are some very deep thoughts. And then uh, what else did you ask me? <laughs> I think we're good there. Okay. <laughs> what I will ask you for the last question is... What are your favorite books? Like, what books do you recommend? All right. I, I, so in terms of this work, actually, I think the most useful book for me was Fritjof Capra, the physicist out of California, wrote a book called The Web of Life. And if anybody's really interested in tapping into what's really going on in living systems and how we need to actually change our thinking, that's a great beginning resource. A little deep, but really worthwhile spending some time with. And from the, that's the outer life. And from the inner life, I keep by my bedside actually the most accessible book on the inner journey of our own development is The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody's done as great a job as he has in, in making this stuff so accessible. And I want to say something about that, is that a whole system of life requires us to work on the inner life, our ability to work with groups, our, our families, our communities, in order to have effect on the larger system of the world. We cannot heal the environment unless we're healing ourselves, and vice versa. The process of engaging the environment will actually tell us so much about ourselves. So we call that three lines of work, self, group, and the larger system. Mm-hmm. They all need to be developed or evolving together. I could not agree more, and the untethered soul is also next to my bed. And it is, is it really? Yes, and it's a book that I refer to and go back to over and over and over again. It's a great touchstone, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah, it I has th- been a pleasure 
chatting with you. Thank you for joining me. I feel like we could talk for another <laughs> another half an hour. <laughs> um, and thanks, Bill. I think your perspective is incredibly valuable, and uh, Nantucket could have a lot to learn from you. Well, thanks, Joanna. I appreciate it. Vital Stories is supported in part by Eminence Organic Skin Care, a certified B Corporation and maker of professional skincare products crafted from premium, natural, organic, and biodynamic ingredients.